We are nearing the end of our series on the, uh, of studies uh, on some of the men we, we've, that are in the book of Matthew. We have uh, just been going through this series, looking at different individuals and different, sometimes even groups of, of uh, men from the book of Matthews. And we've looked at quite a few of them. In fact, this is week number nine of this. And so uh, if you've missed any of them and you want to look them up, they're all on our website, restorationlifechurch.tv. Um, tonight, what we're going to do is we're, we're going to turn our thoughts to the events that surround the crucifixion of Jesus as it's recorded in Matthew. And one of the more fascinating characters in the book is, is really sort of a cryptic fellow. Uh, we know very little about him, about him before the crucifixion, and we know very little about him after the crucifixion. Tonight we're going to be talking about Barabbas, the, the man who got away with murder. We're going to be talking about him. So Matthew 27, 15, if you want to turn there. Um, 27, 15, Matthew 27, 15, we'll begin reading in just a moment. This, where we're reading, we're going to pick it up right in the middle of the trial of Jesus as he stood before Pontius Pilate, and, uh, who was the Roman governor. And we talked about Pontius Pilate last week, so you probably remember a lot about him. Uh, but Matthew 27, 15. Now at the feast... Excuse me. Now at the feast, the governor, that is Pilate, was accustomed to release for the crowd only uh, any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had, a, they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Now let me just pause there for just a moment because... Uh, you know, as you read these, the, the, the last few couple of verses, it can be a little bit difficult to understand, especially when we haven't read the entire context of it because, because of the pronouns they use. So let me just clarify. You look at verse 17, it says, it, it says that Pilate said to them, meaning whom? There he's talking about the people, the mob, the crowd that's there speaking to them. But then he, he, and, and he asked them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus? And then in verse 18, it says, For he knew that it was out of envy that they, but now it's not the crowd, this is the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. Uh, he knew that, that it was out of envy that the Pharisees had delivered Jesus. So in other words, what's happening here is that Pilate is sort of trying to play the mob off against the Pharisees. Uh, he's trying to, he knows the Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus off because they're envious of him. Uh, and, and he's trying to get the crowd to cry out, release Jesus, give us Jesus. That's what he's hoping for will happen because that's his way out of this whole situation because he knows the Pharisees are just trying to get Jesus killed because, the, the, because they're envious of him. Uh, and he knows that there's no fault in Jesus and he's hoping the crowd will, will cry out, give us Jesus. And then if that were to happen, then the Pharisees, having been thus manipulated by Pilate, would be thwarted, and, and, and uh, uh, an innocent man wouldn't be, wouldn't be uh, executed, and Pilate gets to stay, you know, they, when the Pharisees, because the Pharisees would, would get angry if Jesus, they didn't get what they wanted in this moment, but then Pilate would have been able to say, hey, it's just, it's the people, don't blame me, they're the ones that picked Jesus. So that's what's going on. Let's keep reading verse 19. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, meaning Jesus. We're not talking about Barabbas yet. For I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Bar excuse me, Barabbas 
and destroy Jesus. So in other words, what's happening here, you can just picture in your mind the Pharisees and their agents are, are uh, moving among the mob uh, right there before the judgment seat of Pilate. And they're saying, call for Barabbas. Call, call for Barabbas. Call for Barabbas. Get, get Jesus crucified. We, we want Jesus crucified. He's a bad guy. He's a fake. He's not who he said he is. And so they're rabble rousers that are moving among the rabble rousing them to call for the crucifixion of Jesus and the release of Barabbas. Now, verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? So he's ask, asking the same question again. So he's trying, really trying to get them to, to give the answer that he's hoping for. And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Of course, we learned last week he wasn't innocent of his blood. He had the responsibility. He bore the responsibility. He couldn't pass it on. Uh, uh, but uh, anyway, uh, verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. I've always, every time I read that, it sort of just gives, sends a chill down my spine for somebody to say, his blood's on me and my kids. That's <laughs> an amazing statement. And then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Now, I know that for the further along in the Christian walk we go, and the more Bible studies that we attend, and the, the more we study the Word personally, we, we want something accelerated. We want a, a new revelation. We want a further advance in the faith. We want some great concept that will open a new door of growth or, and maturity and balance in our lives. And, and I'm, I'm here to tell you, I want those kind of Bible studies too. And I'd like to be able to teach those kind of Bible studies at least once in a while from, from time to time. But I'm, I'm also here to tell you that tonight, that, that's not what this study is about. Tonight's study is really a simple redeclaration of a concept that will be saving for some and be a reminder for others. However, I feel we often need to be reminded of this simple, basic, down-to-earth teaching. So, as we get into it, let's first, let's begin to just get the, settings in our, the setting in our minds. Pilate stands in the judgment seat there in this Roman fortress, the, the Antonio fortress next door to the temple. He has gone out to meet the Jews at, at, the, at the Gabbatha, which is the, the, uh, just the, the, what they call, is, it's a, literally means a place of paving stones. Because as John tells us in his account, the, the Jews, uh, they don't want to go into the house of a Gentile because then if they do that, they'll be rendered ceremonially unclean. And if they're ceremonially unclean, then they're going to be unable to participate in the upcoming Passover feast because we're very close in time to the Passover. So they don't want to go into where Pilate lives or where he goes inside. So they wait outside. And then Pilate, attempting to be sensitive to the local custom and the religious mores of the Jews around him, he goes out to meet them. And John tells us, and when you put all of them together, you get a bigger picture of the crucifixion. But John tells us that Pilate brings Jesus out and stands him before the crowd. And that he's, he's been beaten horribly. The, the beating itself would have disfigured him. Crown of thorns, thorns have, has been pressed down onto his, onto his head. And the, 
and the blood streams across his face and out onto his upper torso. I mean, the, the wound bleeds as only a head wound bleeds. Anybody ever have a head wound? I mean, they just bleed like, I remember as a kid, I, I fell in, little, had a little bitty, little bitty nick right there on my forehead and my cousin who was babysitting us thought I was about to die because there was so much blood. It's just, so he's just standing there bleeding like this and it's just streaming down and his, his back has been opened up by the whip until his ribs show and he's, He's beaten until he's woozy, hardly able to stand. He's, he's bound, hand and feet, and the remnants of his garments are draped about his body. And Barabbas is brought forward out of prison. Now I want you for a second to put yourself in his place. He is, a, he is convicted of a three-count fel felony, treason, robbery, and murder. And we know this by placing together the four Gospels. Only John calls him a robber, but all the others call him a seditionist or a traitor and a, a murderer. And he's, he's, he is convicted on, of three felony counts. He's a three-time loser. He's on death row. He's going to be killed, and he knows it. Suddenly the door opens and light streams into his dark and fetid cell. Soldiers drag him, drag him out just, and he's kicking and cursing and screaming and fighting all the way. It's not time yet. It's not time yet. It's not time. They said after the Passover, it's not time yet. You're early. You can't do this. He fights them all the way. They drag him into the Gabbatha. The soldiers slap him in the mouth and say, stand up and be quiet. Well, he stands there while the mob is screaming. The governor is on the bench of authority, his judgment seat. Pilate steps to the platform and he says, behold the man, Jesus. When he says, behold the man, Barabbas is like anybody else in the place. He's, he's standing bound on this side of the platform and, 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 and he cuts his eyes over. And when he sees this man standing there, it's a painful sight for him to see because he knows that in just a matter of days, he'll, he's going to look just like that. He knows that's exactly what's going to happen to him and the sight of it cuts him to the quick. It's just horrible. But who is this man? What's going on? What, what is this all about? Pilate says to the people, there are only two prisoners of any significance because as they had this annual pardon, you don't want to waste an annual pardon on a, on a pickpocket. You choose somebody on death row. There are only two prisoners in the Jerusalem prison house on that particular day and they, that are on death row. Whom shall I release to you, Jesus of Nazareth or Barabbas? Barabbas cuts his eyes again. So this is Jesus. I've heard of him. He's, he's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's cast out demons. He's preached good news to the poor. He's fed the poverty-stricken, multiplied bread and fish. He is renowned throughout all of Israel for his goodness and his mercy and his grace. He's renowned for his teaching about God. He's a rabbi. He's a healer. He's a miracle worker. And Barabbas, all this goes through his mind. And I, I can't help but think he thinks to himself, I'm done for. I'm done for. When Pilate says, whom shall I release to you, Jesus of Nazareth or, Bab or, or Barabbas? I'm sure Barabbas said, that's it. There I go. That was my last shot. Then the crowd begins to scream, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. He can hardly believe his ears. He, listen, he is as hated 
by the crowd as he is by the Romans. He's not admired, looked up to, and respected. There's no one that the rabble hates more than a failed revolutionary because a failed revolutionary, A, brings, uh, brings down retribution upon their heads, and then B, some of their brothers and some of their sons were killed in his revolution. Not only that, but the people whom he robbed in order to finance his revolution was, was not the Romans, it was them. You know, we often think about uh, those who hate this inner city crime element or those who live in the suburbs, but no, it's not true. The people who really hate inner city crime are those who live in the inner city. Because the closer you are to the criminals, the more you understand what it means to be a victim. Well, they, they despise Barabbas. They hate him. He's a murderer, a robber, a thief, a seditionist. And he, he's brought retribution upon their heads and scandal upon the people of, people of Israel. And, and they're screaming, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Barabbas' heart exalts. What can this mean? Is there a chance? Are they, are they going to choose me over Jesus? Give us Barabbas. Well, Pilate can't believe his ears. He says, well, what should I do with Jesus then? Thinking that, if he asks them this, they say, oh, no, 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 you're right. Jesus is the one we want. Release Jesus. Pilate, even now, thinking that they're calling out the wrong name. What shall I do with Jesus? And they say, crucify him. Crucify him. And Barabbas is standing there thinking, yeah, crucify him. Not me. His heart begins to pound. His adrenaline glands are pumping like fire hoses. Is he going to get out of it? Is, is he going to escape? Is, is he going to live? And he looks over at Jesus to see if Jesus is going to say anything. He expects him to say, let, let me go. Release me. I haven't done anything wrong. But Jesus says not a word. His arms dangle before him, limp. Bound by the ropes, and Barabbas' heart begins to beat hard, and hope rises. Pilate insists, why? Why crucify him? What has he done? Why should I kill this good man? Now, well, you know what Barabbas is thinking right then, don't you? I mean, surely Barabbas is thinking to himself, please, governor, don't reason with them. Just take them at the word. Just stop talking. Just do what they want. Pilate persists until finally the situation is on the verge of a riot. And they're shouting, give us Barabbas! Give us Barabbas! We want Barabbas! Pilate finally says, all right, all right. And he washes his hands of the whole matter, calls to his soldiers and points at Barabbas and says, unbind him and let him go. As Barabbas is led down the steps from the platform of the Hall of Justice onto the paving stones where the rabble, which, by the way, had just days before probably prayed for his execution, now they greet him as a hero. And as he steps down onto the paving stones and starts away, people slapping him on the back, congratulating him and welcoming him into their midst. Perhaps as he walked away, Barabbas looked over his shoulder one last time and the words of the Roman governor echoed in his ear, Behold the man. My friends, I, I, I believe that this scene, and of course I've added to it just for the, to give us a, a, a more colorful picture, but that's the events that happened. 
But this scene may well be one of the most poignant portrayals of one of the simplest of all biblical doctrines, lost often, forgotten, buried under tons of theological sophistication, lies the one great jewel of biblical truth. Grace. Salvation by grace. I know this is a simple message. I know that you've heard it. I know that many of you have taught it. I, I, I know that you, many of you have led people to, to receive Jesus based on this, yet how can we possibly overexpress it? How can we, can we fail to celebrate this wonderful truth? But let's, as we look at it, let's understand something of the character of Barabbas' sin, and maybe we'll understand something more about grace. John describes Barabbas as a robber. The other three describe him as a seditionist and a murderer. In other words, Barabbas was a thief, he is a rebel, and he is a murderer. When you begin to say them all together fast, you'll see who it sounds like because it reminds me of someone who came to steal, kill, and destroy. Why, of course, he is, he is the child of his father, Satan. Barabbas... His sins link him to the fountainhead of all sin, and he is like his father. He is a robber. He is a thief. He is a destroyer. He destroys loyalties and relationships and homes and families. He sullies consciences. He kills. He steals. He takes. He demands. I mean, doesn't that sound like Satan in, in every way? We ourselves, however, we must understand not only the character of Barabbas' sin, but we have to understand the character of our own sins. And this, this is fundamentally important because if we don't understand our own sins, we cannot understand the width and depth and height and breadth and measure of Christ's grace for us. Until we really understand the character of our own sin, we'll never really understand the measure of grace that Jesus has extended to us. Because here, here's the thing, I'm going to get into it a little more fully, but if I think my sins aren't that bad, then I don't need that much grace. And I don't understand how great His grace is in that moment. You know, I believe that the churches of America are filled with people who say things like, they read about people like Barabbas, they say, oh, that stinker Barabbas. What a, what a stinker. What a robber, what a murderer, what a treasonous, wretched, lecherous, filthy beast. He needed Jesus to die for him, of course, but... But, you know, I, I'm a good person. I, I'm a good person. I, I, I'm, I'm, a part, I'm a member of the Lions Club. I, I mean, I, I've been in the Assemblies of God my whole life. My dad was an Assemblies of God minister. I've gone to church my whole life. I haven't missed a Sunday school in 30 years. I've eaten enough chicken and enough church potlucks to completely feed, uh, feed the Mexican Navy. I'm surely I'm going to be okay. I mean, it's good that Jesus died for Barabbas, but I'm certainly not in the same category as that filthy, robbing murderer. But I think we must seriously re-inspect the character and nature of our own sin. How can we do that, though? Because the problem is that the reality of our sins is camouflaged by the ambiance of the wholesome American righteousness with which we drape ourselves. I mean, listen. There are not very many people here, uh, probably none that I'm aware of, who have actually physically murdered anybody, right? I mean, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I'm not looking, not looking for a confessional. 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be like, you know, scared of you from now this point on. But there, but there may be some. There may be somebody watching on the live stream. But but there are not very many people here that have ever actually really committed a murder. I mean, actually taken a human life. But Jesus tried to bring into perspective this whole idea of sin. Once he was preaching and basically the crowd's attitude was, yeah, but, but we haven't really sinned. We, we haven't really sinned. And, and so Jesus, just in this sermon, began to, he said, let me just ask you a question. I'm paraphrasing, but he said, let me ask you a question. Has anybody here ever said in your heart or in your thoughts or at any level, no matter how fleeting, have you ever thought, even as a child, I hate you? Have you, have you ever had those kind of thoughts you know, I hate him, you know, or if you're an American, you're like, oh, I hate Russia. I hate China. Or let's get where it's a little more, a little tougher. That mass murderer who killed those people on the 4th of July parade. Oh, I hate him. I hate him. Or if you're conservative, I hate liberals. Hate all those woke people. Or if you're a woke person, hate all those conservatives. I don't, I don't care what it is. But let me, have you ever had those? Let me, let me ask you this. Would it embolden you if I raised my hand? Because I remember moments of rage and hatred as a child so intense that I, I remember chasing my friends around the outside of a house with a two by four in my hand, wanting so badly to bash them over their head and to crush their little skulls. And, and the only reason... All of us are still alive is because God made me slow. Thank God he made me slow. I couldn't catch him. There's a reason why, you know, I'm slow and my vertical is three inches. There's a reason behind all that. But I can remember the bitterness and the gall. I remember the taste of it in my mouth. I, I mean, I'm talking about having about bitter hate. Hate so bad that you would kill in that moment. Anybody ever hated anybody in your life? Raise your hand. My mind's up. My hand's up. Why, you bunch of murderers. You know, I, I'm not turning my back on a lot of you. That's all I can say. You see, Jesus saw this whole sin issue from a completely different perspective. And he began to show us from a different perspective. You see, in the Old Testament... It really wasn't about what you thought or what you felt or what was going on in your heart. I mean, it always was. God was concerned about that. But the law can't judge the intents. The law only judged the action. Jesus said, this is the way it was before. But now under grace, standards are a little higher. That's what a lot of people don't understand. They say, I'm not under law. Well, if you're under grace, the standard's actually higher. He, he said, if God is a God of love then love is life. Therefore, that which is contrary to love is contrary to life. Therefore, if I hate, I've already done murder in my heart. If the God of love becomes life and dwells among us, then that which is contrary to love is contrary to life. And Jesus says, you don't have to do murder. If you hate, then you are running contrary to love. And, and, and that which is contrary to love is the spirit of death. And that is murder. I, I wonder if there's, Anybody here who, who can ever recount a time when lust as strong as an ocean with an undertow threatened to draw you out into the depths of the sea and dragged at your eyes and your heart and your brain and made your pulse pound and you hated yourself but you knew that it was real. Am I the only one in this whole congregation that could admit that there were times when I knew the downward 
black, earnest, fearsome pull of lust of the flesh and lust of the eye? Because I have felt that. Anybody, anybody else in this respectable, respectable Assembly of God crowd? I'm not asking you if you ever committed adultery. I'm not asking if you were immoral before you were married. I'm just asking if you've ever just sensed that deep inside of you. I mean that beast cage up inside. Am I the only one here? Anybody ever felt lust like a fluttering bird in your chest just pounding against your ribs? Anybody? Jesus said that's adultery. See, Jesus turned this sin thing upside down. He, he said, you, you think you've only committed adultery when you actually have slept with somebody, but Jesus said that which is contrary to the affirmation of someone else's integrity before God is the same thing as adultery which demands satisfaction. Therefore, if I commit adultery mentally, it's the same thing before God as if I committed it physically. You see what I'm trying to say is that it's really easy for me to look at some mass murderer on death row. Or look at Barabbas, who, you know, was a murderer and a seditionist and a murderer, and say, hmm, that guy sinned. It's easy for me to say because the sins he's committed in the flesh are so real, they're so manifest, they're so obvious. The problem, though, with that whole way of thinking is that thinking that way and thinking that person's sins are bad, they're so much worse than mine, that way of thinking will rob us of our deep gratitude for the grace of God in our own lives. There, there was a young man who went on a camping trip many years ago with several guys from the University of Maryland football team. They were camping way up in the mountains near Front Royal, Virginia, and this, this young man was a Christian, but the rest of the group of these young men, they were just really a, really a foul lot. I mean, they were, they were not good boys. You know, they were, they were hard-drinking rowdies, every, every single one of them. And they had climbed this steep incline and came to a big open space. And they, they turned around and plunked down uh, together on this grassy slope near the top of this incline. And they, they looked out over the, the beautiful valley and they could see the you know, the peaks of some of the other hills around them. And it was just bre breathtaking, absolutely breathtaking. And this young Christian man was sitting next to a guy that played tackle at the University of Maryland. And honestly, he said that he didn't, he didn't think that this big old guy had even had a civilized thought, much, like, much less a rel religious thought. And a football player sitting there all of a sudden just began to say, and when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in from how great thou art. And the young Christian fellow turned to him in shock and said, Tony, I, did, I didn't know you knew about that. And he said, yeah, I, I know. But the sight of these hills just made me realize I'd forgotten it. There's something about staring into the majesty and the awesome glory, and radiance and the holiness of God that makes me see those things in my life that I have dismissed as tiny little insignificant grains in my shoe that God perceives as boulders, that God perceives as monumental rebellion that separates me from the love of God. Stones of such mountainous proportions that they are demonic in their capacity to destroy my life and I dismiss them casually with the wave of my hand. Well, I may have told my mother that I hated her once when I was a teenager, but it's not exactly murder. Jesus says it is. 
Well, I salivated over the girl in the bathing suit. I mean, sure, I allowed my eyes to linger on her curves, but my goodness, it's not like I was sleeping around. Jesus says, it is. Why, yes, I, I probably manipulated my father-in-law to get the money I wanted. Jesus says, thief! Well, yes, I, I may have hated the black man who lived down the street from me. And Jesus says, murderer! See, we, we just can't really believe that God takes all of this stuff, you know, seriously. All the things we think are little. Let me, let me give you a fascinating passage of Scripture. Turn to Galatians chapter 5. I want to read to you what Paul described as the works of the flesh. And it's not so much the items on the list that are necessarily I want you to look at, but the order that I want you to see. So Galatians chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 17. This is what it says. For the, less, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another, one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now before we read the next part where he actually gives us this list, here's what I want you to do. And I'm joking, so don't really do this. But take your pen in your hand, and let's just mark out the, the ones that we don't like. This is the way actually a lot of people live their lives with the Bible. It's like, well, I don't like this part of the Bible, so I'm just going to ignore it. So let's just cut to the chase, and we'll just mark out the things that we don't like. So here's what he says, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are revealed, which are these, adultery, sexual immorality, impurity, lewdness. Okay, well, those are all okay. I can deal with those. We'll leave those on the list. Idolatry. Okay, let's leave that one in. I can't even remember the last time that I worshipped a golden calf. So let's leave that one in there. All right? Sorcery. Hey, I don't even read the horoscope. So let's leave that one in there. Hatred. Oh, whoa. Well, let's, let's mark that one out. I don't like that one. That one's a little too close to home. I don't like, like that one. Strife. Anybody here have an argument in the last six months? Let me see your hand. Okay, ma'am, you can mark that out. Candy, just mark it right out of your Bible. Jealousy. Anybody here been jealous in, in, in your lifetime? Let me see your hand. Have you ever been jealous? Okay, we, you can mark that one out. You can mark that one out because we don't want to deal with that. Rage. Anybody been angry and you haven't dealt with it before God and reconciled with the person with whom you're angry? Anybody? Anybody? Okay. All right. Well, let's mark out anger then. Selfishness. Well, I don't even going to go there. Dissensions. Anybody, any, anybody here chosen up sides and fought about anything at church or, or on the job? You, maybe you gossiped with somebody else at the water cooler about your boss. Any, anybody done anything like that? Well, mark that one out. Heresies. Okay, that's okay. Envy, murderers, drunkenness, carousing in the light. That's the key. He, he does, gives us this long list and then he adds on there and says, and the like. So it's like, we can't even just use the list and say, well, because it's things like that. He said, I warned you, as I previously warned you, that those who do such things are not, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the galling part. Here's really the part I want, to, I want to point out to you. Paul lists all of these things equally. Equally. That's the galling part about this passage. That's the part that makes this verse where we read it, we're like, I hate that. I don't, I don't really want to deal with this. But, but just, we just look at, at the fact and, and notice that hatred and, and strife and jealousy and anger and divisions and, and, and dissensions are ranked equally with, between witchcraft and murders. Okay, you know, this is getting a little uncomfortable now, right? I mean, look at it. Envy. 
Anybody here ever envy anybody else? Look, look at where he ranks envy. He puts envy between heresy and murder. You know, you know, Barabbas is looking more and more like me every minute, isn't he? Don't point. He's looking like you too, by the way. Here's the thing. The key to understanding God's work in our lives is, first of all, to understand the work of sin in our lives. There's a phrase that passes for contemporary wisdom in modern America. There are songs written about it. It's sort of the anthem of modern America. And it's this phrase that says, we are all children of God. And listen, there is a way in which that's correct. That is to say that we are all made by God. We're children of His created order, that's for sure. However, we need to understand there is a far more profound way in which that is wrong. Turn to John chapter 8, if you will. John 8, 32. And I'm not going to do a great deal of commentary on this, but this is a conversation between Jesus and His old friends, the Pharisees. John 8, 32, Jesus is speaking. You'll know this first verse. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I mean, stop there for a minute. I mean, doesn't that sound like a great verse? Don't we? We love that verse. What a wonderful promise. You would think that anybody would say, yay, that's wonderful, Jesus. Well, here's the thing. That's only a good promise if you're willing to consider the possibility that you may be a slave. You understanding me? Everybody understanding what I'm saying? However, if you, you pride yourself in your freedom, that, that declaration, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you're filled with self-righteousness, you'll respond to that statement with anger. Well, I'm already free. If you say to somebody on death row, your sins can be forgiven. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. They often will say, great, tell me more. However, if you say to somebody who walks out of a pulpit in an Assemblies of God church, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And he'll look at you and say, are you, are you talking to me? Are you talking to me? So look at how the, the Pharisees respond to Jesus. Start again, verse 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? They're responding exactly the way. They're proud of their freedom. But, and it's a strange thing for them to say because not only are they in bondage to Satan, which they're blind to, but they already know that's obvious to everyone that they're in bondage to Rome. So yeah, they're, they're, they're wrong in both ways. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Two fathers. Two fathers. I speak of what I've seen with my, uh, with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. I mean, what an infuriating thing to say to these religious leaders. Look at verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works, of Abraham, the, the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has 
told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works, of you, the, the works your father did. And they said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and, 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 I, and I'm here. I, I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And that's something. He basically said, you're, you're not hearing me because you don't want to. You are the father of the de- you you are of your father the devil and your will is to do the, your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Yow! I mean, wowzer! I I read things like that and I think to myself, it is not amazing that Jesus was killed by the Pharisees. It's amazing that that he lasted three years before he was killed by the Pharisees. I mean, that's, I mean, can you believe what he said to them? That is strong. I mean, he ends up by saying, you are not children of God. I mean, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, I, I, I never cease to be amazed at the devastation that Jesus could, could uh, that Jesus wrought in a series of words. You know, he puts word into word into word into word until his enemies are slain by the two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. I mean, this is an amazing series of declarative statements until they are convicted in their heart that they are not at all children of God. Not at all children of God. There are two fathers. And there are two sets of children. I'm here to tell you, the Pharisees, Roman soldiers who nailed Jesus to the cross... Barabbas for his robbery, murder, and sedition, and me. We're all brothers under the skin. The character, here's the thing, the character of my sin is no less evil because of my cowardice to act it out. Just as evil. It's just as evil as as was Barabbas. You know, it's no less... Just because he had the boldness to actually take up the knife and do something. His is not more evil than mine. All the euphemisms we use to cover our sin are not sufficient to wipe away our guilt or our condemnation. Do you know why liberals hate the Bible? They'll they'll tell you that it's because the Bible is romantic and unrealistic. But nothing could be further from the truth. The reason the liberal hates the Bible is because the Bible tells it very clearly like it is. Liberal humanistic America loves euphemism. You you know what that word, that English word euphemism means? A euphemism is a word that makes an ugly reality sound better than it really is. So I'll give you an example, a couple of examples. Here's one. I don't know if you've ever heard of this. It's not a term you hear much anymore, but anybody ever heard of a package store? You know what a package store is? All right, what is a package store? It's a liquor store. That's exactly right. 
<laughs> the, you know, a package store is a store that sells alcoholic beverages in sealed containers for consumption elsewhere. It's a liquor store is what it is. You know, kids drive by and they see a sign that says package store and, and they're like, Daddy, let's go get some packages for Christmas. And Dad's like, no, not there, not there. Or how about this one? I mean, we, package store sounds so much nicer, right? But how about this one? A lady of the evening. A lady of the evening. I mean, that sounds like a nun after dark, doesn't it? That's, that's, that's far from that. We, we love euphemisms. Well, well, the Bible, of course, knows none of those terms. The Bible insists that murderers are murderers, that liars are liars, that children of Satan are children of Satan. And what the world hates about the Bible is not that it is so romantic and unrealistic in its worldview, it's that it is real and it speaks directly to us. The problem is, you see, that the, the Bible is just as real with me, about me, as it is with the murderer about him. You know, here's the, honestly, if I could only just, if I could just read the Bible to other people, then I could be perfectly safe with it in my hands. But the problem is that every time I, I open the Word of God to, to, to preach to you stinkers, it's that my own stinkerness is, is, uh, is staring me straight in the face. We, we have to be done with euphemisms and face the reality of our sin as it is. Here's the reality. The nicest, sweetest, purest little gray-haired grandma in this place who has been in church for, for decades, who's never been with more than one man in her whole life, she must stare into the reflecting pool of the Word of God and say, but for the grace of God, I am no different than the prostitute who stands on the street corner in downtown Memphis. And that is really hard for us. It's almost a supernatural leap of faith. In some ways, and you may think I'm crazy for this, but in some ways, it's easier, easier for us to believe in the grace of God than it is to believe our own sin. The problem is, the grace of God is rendered almost meaningless unless I face my sin. Is Barabbas looking a little closer to anybody? What is the consequence of sin? Well, Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. The problem with sin is that somebody must pick up the tab. Somebody has to pay. Sin looses the elements of death and judgment in our lives and somebody has to pay. Is there anybody here? I don't think there's anybody here. Maybe, maybe some will remember this. It goes way back into the early 50s. But anybody here remember uh, an old Sid Caesar show called Your Show of Shows? Anybody? You remember that one? Yeah. I mean, that's, it's before my time, but you can see clips on YouTube. Um, but uh, there was a skit one time on that show where there were two guys in a restaurant eating. And they finish eating, and the waitress bring, brings the check out, and they begin to fight over who's going to get to pay the bill. So, uh, I don't know, you remember seeing this, this skit? Um, she's thinking maybe, but anyway, they, they, uh, they, they just, uh, Sid sees and this other guy just get into this, into this knockdown, 
drag out fight. They tear up the whole restaurant. They, they break the tables. Other customers are all running out of the restaurant. They pull the curtains down and, they're, and they're, they're, they tear their clothes to pieces. And finally, at the end of the skit, one guy knocks out the other one and he grabs the check and he, and he crawls and climbs up to the cash register. And then he gets up there after this, all this, and he says, oh, oh my goodness, I forgot my wallet. <laughs> well, you know, that's the way it is. We go through our lives, we just pile up the bill, we, we bust up the restaurant, we knock down the aisles, we say, I'll pay my way, I'll pay for this, I, I don't take charity, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay my own way. And the problem is we get up to the eternal cash register and we don't even have a wallet. Somebody has to pay the bill. Barabbas stood there, not only in the hall of Roman justice, but standing in the hall of divine justice as well bankrupt and in hock up to his eyes. The wages of sin is death. And he's about to die physically. They're going to beat him senseless and, and they're going to nail him to a cross and he's going to die spiritually after that. I mean, what a, what a shocking monstrosity to go from physical ex execution to the throne of God's judgment. Thinking that you've gone through the worst thing in your life, in your whole life, only to realize later, in just a few moments later, that the fire that man can build is nothing. That's where Barabbas stands. Convicted, guilty, sentenced, doomed, bankrupt. He can't buy off Pontius Pilate, and he can't buy off God. There is no hope for him. Now look at the infinite care of God. What an amazing Jesus this is. Not only concern for Barabbas, but concern for us in this room because he was teaching us. Even in the midst of this, of this agonizing, the agonizing horror of this moment, Jesus was teaching us. He's, he's painting a picture. In the release and redemption of Barabbas, Jesus was painting a portrait of grace in his own blood. There is no guarantee that Barabbas would ever believe that the intervening, intervening death of Jesus was for his, for his sins or that he would ever be converted. We have no biblical record of that. We don't know anything about Barabbas before or after this event. But you know what? In a way, that's the wonderful thing about this story. Jesus is showing that he died for people without knowing whether or not they would repent and believe. He's painting the picture in his own blood. Barabbas was saved, if you want to call it that, saved, quote unquote. At least he was saved from the judgment of Pontius Pilate when he did not deserve to be saved. We've agreed on that, right? He was not a good person. He didn't deserve to be set free. He did not understand it. He was brought up from the prison house basement and brought before the mob, not even recognizing or realizing what had gone on before, not understanding the preparation, not understanding the argument, not understanding why he was there, and not understanding really who Jesus was. He was saved not deserving it, saved not understanding it, and he was saved without helping it. He did not assist in his release. He didn't defeat the Roman guards in, in combat. He, he didn't smuggle a knife in under his garment and cut his ropes and make his escape. There was no file baked into a cake that was given to him. He did not do anything to get himself free. Barabbas was released because someone else paid the tab. Someone else took his place. 
You know, in modern evangelical Christianity, we uh, ask people these kind of questions. We say, are you saved? Are you, are you born again? Do you have uh, uh, an assurance of your salvation? We say things like, if you died right now, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? And, and those are all good questions. There's nothing wrong with asking those questions. However, however did you know that those are not the questions that John Wesley asked? You know what he asked people? He would ask them this question. He would say, are you trusting this moment solely in the blood of Jesus? Are you trusting this moment solely, only, completely in the blood of Jesus? And if anybody said, yes, I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus and anything, then he would say, it's the and that will damn you. That was Wesley's response. It's the and that will condemn you. Yes, I'm trusting the blood of Jesus and, and church membership. No, no, the and will undo you. I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus and faithfulness to my wife. No, that, that avails nothing. I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus and, and good works. I'm trusting in the blood of Jesus and anything else. It's the and that will condemn you before God. Are you trusting solely, only, fully, completely, totally, without reservation in the blood of Jesus? Jesus in the garden said to those who came to arrest him, Take me, let these go free. For Barabbas he stood silently and was led away to crucifixion while Barabbas was released. On the cross he prayed for those at the foot of the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In his innocence he died for the guilty. Therefore, grace is that which is done solely by God that I do not deserve, that I cannot understand, that I dare not attempt to help with, that has been bought by the intervening body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus pays the tab. And listen, this, this may be the most important thing of all. If Jesus paid the tab fully, wholly, totally, without anything that you, you or I can do, if the bill is paid, then one can jump, and many people have done, in his, done it historically, one can, one can jump to the conclusion that, that if that's true, then everybody is saved no matter what we believe or what we do. And that is called universalism, and you might see some, in some places it's called uh, Unitarian universalism, Unitarian as opposed to Trinitarian. And so they say there's no Jesus, there's no Holy Spirit, it's just God and everybody gets saved in the end. Doesn't matter what you do, what you believe, everybody gets saved. That's what it is. Well, that's, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. So the, the, I think there's a question that we have to ask. We're, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to close with this. But this is the most important thing of all. Here's the question we have to ask. If Jesus has paid the tab, how do I get in on it? How do I get in on it? Here it is. Here it is. This, now picture this. I'm going to just give you a, a simple illustration. And, I'm, and uh, like any human illustration, it's going to fall short. So, you know, if you try to push it too far. But this, I think, will help us understand. Just say I, I'm eating in a restaurant and I realize that I don't have any money. And then I see you sitting across the restaurant, sitting at your table. And I come over to you and I say, hey, hey, do you remember me? Please, please pay my tab. I don't have any money. I, I didn't mean to do this. I'm in a bind. I don't know what to do. And, and so you look at me and you say, it's okay, I'll take care of it. And then you pick up the, the, the 
the check, the ticket, and you go up to the cash register and leave. Now I finish my meal and then go up to the cash register and say, say to the person, imagine this. I, I've just finished eating here. The tab must be paid and I don't have any money. Now, that guy over there, that guy that just left, said that he would pay for it, but I don't believe he paid it. So I want to go into the kitchen and wash dishes until I paid the whole thing. The restaurant says, well, welcome. Come on in, wash some dishes, pay for the whole thing with the sweat of your brow, labor until it's done. In that case, I, therefore, am paying for that which has already been paid. Therefore, by my labor, by my effort, by me trying to pay for it myself, I cut myself off from his grace. Because I, if I'm trying to earn it, then I'm trying to pay for something that's already been paid. If the tab has been paid and I insist on paying it myself, then I deny that his will toward me was good and I cut myself off from his grace. Therefore, I must have some way of making his grace operative in my life at the point of that cash register. When I get to the cash register, there must be something that says, I believe that he's already paid. I didn't see him. I was in the back of the restaurant at the time. I was, I was eating my steak. I wasn't standing there at the cash register to see it, but I believe him. He said, I'll pay for this. He said, don't worry about the bill. When you get to the cash register, it'll be settled. I have to then have what? I have to have faith. Ephesians 2.4 But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved Barabbas, and He loved Dave Hoskins, and He loved you, put your name in there. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Therefore, hear me, faith is simply the trigger that makes grace operative in my life. Faith that God has done all that He said that He's done. Faith that He's paid the bill when He said He would pay the bill. Faith that He's forgiven all when he, that, he is, that He says He's forgiven. Faith that He has redeemed me just as He said He would. Faith that he has paid the price totally. Faith that there is nothing lacking for my eternal salvation. Faith and faith alone makes his grace operative in my life. What a wonderful God we serve. Now in closing, I want you to do this. I want you just to close your eyes for a moment. I want you just to use your, your imagination and imagine this in your mind and allow the Holy Spirit to, 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 to help you see this. But imagine this scenario. It doesn't, not going to make any sense, but just picture it anyway. You're asleep in your bed and suddenly there's, there's this shouting, a clamoring, there's this noise and, and, and you, 
you just, uh, be, you just come bolt upright. You're just awake suddenly in your bed. And, and you look around and you see that there's these strange people there and they drag you out of your bed and, and, and take you outside into a public place and people are watching all this commotion and they're screaming and yelling, what's going on here? What's going on here? And then suddenly someone from out of the crowd shouts out as loud as, loud as they can, he committed murder! She's filled with lust and adulterous thoughts. He's lied to his parents when he was 13. She's a wicked murderer filled with hatred, bitterness, sedition, strife, and envy. And then somebody else says, Ah, he deserves to die. He deserves to go to hell. This is the day the price has to be paid. And just then you look to your left. And there stands Jesus. And he says, Take me. Let this person go. That's grace. That's what Jesus did. He paid the tab. And the truth is, our tab was long, and it was more than we could ever pay. And Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray together. Father, as we, in your presence, we're in awe of your grace. We're in awe, Lord God, of the fact that, that um, you did this for us and that we cannot, we cannot earn it, we cannot make it happen. All we can do is put our faith in you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, if there's anybody in this room or anybody watching on the live stream that, that uh, Lord, that they're not trusting solely in the blood of Jesus and the blood of Jesus alone for their salvation and, and in nothing else, I pray, God, that today would be the day that they make sure that they're in the right place. And Lord, that they would just pray a simple prayer of faith to make grace operative in their life right now. No more looking at other people saying, oh, they really need to get saved or they really need Jesus, but instead looking at our own lives and saying, oh, I need it. I have sinned. I've sinned. But, but for the fact that Jesus died for me, I'm doomed. But Lord, we pray and we say, I believe that your grace is sufficient. It's enough. It has paid it all. We believe what you said. And Lord, now we use that faith to put our trust in Jesus and to believe on you. And I pray, God, that every one of us, whether we've never done that or whether we've been to church our whole lives, but, but maybe some have been trusting in Jesus and whatever. But God, today we would say, no, 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 it's not about my good works. It's not about how good I am. It's not about my checklist list of do's and don'ts. It's about Jesus and Jesus alone. And all those other things are all about growth and holiness and becoming like Christ. But when it comes to my salvation, it's what Jesus has done on the cross. He paid the price. And I believe it. And because I believe it, I put my faith in you. That when this is all said and done, when this life is over, when I stand before the judgment seat of, of, of God, that you will say, the price has been paid in full. And we give you praise in the strong, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.